Thanks for that reading, Margie. And good morning, friends. Um, I'm Silas Sham, associate pastor here, and it is so good to see you. I'm so glad you're here worshiping with us. Today, we are in the fifth week of a series called Portrait, representing Christ in our city, where we've tried to look at distortions about who God is, and then try to discover the reality of God when we see God rightly. And so this week, we're slated to explore the distortion that God is anti-pleasure, that God is a killjoy. And as we hear from God's word this morning, one, let us discern together whether or not this is true. And then two, let's ask, better yet, is this a good way to even frame this distortion in the first place? Is this the best way to do that? So if you would, please join me for a word of prayer and let's journey together. Holy God, we are grateful for the gift of this day and for this opportunity in our week to pause and to be read by you. I pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, and it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Work in us this morning and let us discern your character. And together we pray this and say amen and amen. So language is an interesting thing. In many ways, it shapes how we experience the world around us. And so, for instance, I grew up in Canada doing French immersion. Half my school was in English, half was in French from grade one all the way through grade 12. And there are words that exist in French that really capture the heart of reality, especially if you're an adolescent. And so take, for instance, this phrase, la douleur exquise, la douleur exquise. In English, that translates directly to the exquisite pain. The exquisite pain. Again, particularly appropriate during high school or, you know, that that stage of life. Any guesses what this means, what the French means when we try and translate it to English? It doesn't go perfectly, but any guesses? This phrase refers specifically to the feeling of loving someone who will never love you back. The exquisite pain. In English, we simply call this the friend zone. (laughs) But in French, it's much more accurate, right? It's much more visceral. It's more uh, instinctive. It actually better describes... What happens there? Again, high school, good times. Um, It truly reflects the reality that is there, the exquisite pain. It crafts a better description of what is actually happening. So see, language, it's an interesting thing. It names and it shapes how we experience the world. And today, as we turn our attention to the distortion that God is anti-pleasure, How do we experience these words? How do we experience the world created within these these words? God is anti-pleasure. God is a killjoy. Think about it like this. Imagine that 
the church is like a parent in a house full of kids. And so there was a parent who was raising their children, and they wanted to make sure that their children were safe. So the parent scours the internet, sees a couple blog posts, and gets really concerned about not touching the stove. So from then on, everything was about avoiding hot coals, hot burners, the flames. Don't touch the stove, otherwise you'll burn yourself. Careful, the stove is really, really hot. Watch it, there are live flames there. Do not touch. And again, the intentions are good. The instincts are good. It is not good for kids to play with the stove if they're unsupervised or untrained. That's probably not a good thing. But the thing is, so many other things happen in the kitchen. The stove isn't the only thing in the kitchen. In the kitchen, people eat together. In the kitchen, people cook together. And let alone in the kitchen, there's so much more happening in the rest of the house. The stove isn't the only thing there. And there's a lot of life that is being shared together throughout the space. But the parent could never join in on any of this. The parent could never recognize everything else happening around them. Because that parent at this time was so intent on making sure that no one was going to get burnt, that no one touched the stove, which is good again. But they never looked up and away to see what else was happening in the rest of the house. And they've missed the experience that is there in the place around them. What's really sad about a story like this is that even though the parent has tried so hard to make sure that all the children stayed safe, the parents spent so much time focusing on what not to do that when the kids finally leave the house, they've realized they've never learned what they should do. The emphasis has been so much on the avoiding of dangerous and hazardous that they've never been shown how to recognize and appreciate the joys of life. The parent is so busy saying what they stand against that they've never actually said what they stood for. For many, this is the story of Christianity that has been experienced. For many, the story of God, the story of Christianity, the story of the church in America is one where the church has used every ounce of its social capital to let the world know what it stands against. That it no longer has any ability to speak and say what it stands for. Friends, we are those kids. And that parent is Christianity in America. All week, I've been wrestling with how I might present this sermon. One approach to a sermon like this would be to take the concept, God is anti-pleasure, and then try and show or prove 
why that's not the case. And this is one way to do it. But for this community, as I was preparing this week, for the people in this room, I felt like that might be more preaching to the choir in this context. That's not to say there can't be fruit from that other approach, from the other endeavor. Don't mishear me. But remember, language is an interesting thing. It shapes how we experience reality. And so for us this morning, we're going to take a different approach because whenever we talk about the distortions of God, things like God is against pleasure, God's against sex, God is against money, God is unjust, God is spiteful. Like Christianity is based on us versus them mentality. And we say that those are distortions. It's tempting It's really tempting for us to talk about they, the people who have this distorted vision of whatever it is out there, in contrast with we, the people who have the clear vision. Are you catching this? We do this because, well, we are the church after all. We know the truth. We know that God is not anti-pleasure. And God is not unjust. God is good. Christianity is a unifying thing. But this is a preacher's trick. Let me let you behind the veil. It's a preacher's trick. It preaches great within a Christian echo chamber. But it makes us just end up feeling good about ourselves. I'm not interested in preaching to the choir this morning. What I'm interested in is instead, whether or not we are able to see the distortion with Christ's eyes. Can we see this distortion with Christ's eyes? So friends, we are not going to ask the question, is God anti-pleasure? Let's reframe the question. Let's see what this distortion is really asking us this morning. And it's asking us, why? Why? Why do people perceive God to be anti-pleasure? Different question. Why do people perceive God to be anti-pleasure? If you're in this room, most people in this room are here because you already have a religious affiliation to Christianity. That's why we worship. Why do people perceive God to be anti-pleasure? What makes that possible? This is what every one of these distortions asks us as well. It's another question that these distortions ask. Because newsflash, the biggest influence that forms how someone thinks about God is the conduct of people who claim to be the people of God. Are you hearing this? Like, if people think that God is anti-pleasure, it's only because... Christians, people like you and me, have shared this, have have shaped this image in our imagination and in their imagination. So this, this distortion doesn't say so much about people who don't claim Christ as Lord. It does say everything about people who do. So Bethany Northeast, the fact that this distortion is held by so many people, is indicative. It's telling us something about the Christianity we're living. 
the thing that makes this possible. I once heard a preacher say it this way, you can't take God's standards and apply them on a kingdom that doesn't recognize the king. Instead, inside Christian community, we live by God's standard so that people outside of this standard are attracted to God's community, to God's kingdom community. And we live that in such a way that they can't help but want to participate. This is what being a holy witness is. Letting our lives do more preaching than our words. So do you hear the prophetic heartbreak from people who say that God is anti-pleasure? Can you see why they might have that opinion? There are multiple answers to this question, too many to unpack here today alone, but one of the reasons why people think God is anti-pleasure is because of how Christianity has preached its ethics in America. It's similar to how Judaism preaches Judaism's ethics. Speaking in generalities here, Judaism is not a set of beliefs about God or humanity or the universe. Judaism is a comprehensive way of life with rules and practices for every aspect of life. So that's how Judaism presents itself. That's how they see themselves. And all these rules and practices can be found in the Halakha. That's a bunch of writings. It's the Torah. It's the commentary from the rabbis. It's all the the laws. From here, you get mitzvahs. You get statements about how to react to a situation, how to act in a certain situation. So these laws are instructive for practitioners of Judaism in ways that try and tell them if something is right or wrong, if they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. This is how Judaism works. Christianity is not supposed to quite work this way, but oftentimes it does. Which results in Christianity being expressed, again, based off what you are against. When it comes to things that people find pleasurable, again, accruing money, eating food, amassing possessions, sex, this makes Christian conversations about them zero in on the morality of a given thing. So all we talk about when we refer to a situation or um, a person, an event, is, is it morally right or is it morally wrong? Is the act right or wrong? Is that person a moral person or an immoral person? Again, Christianity isn't supposed to just work like Judaism in this way. Think about Kanye's album that just dropped. Anyone? Right? There are so many people who have written words this weekend who have tried to make moral pronouncements about Kanye, the legitimacy of his faith, the sincerity of his music, whether or not he's really a Christian, like words have been written and responses have been posted, okay? It's been, what, two days, three days? Not too long. But two things. What makes us think we can truly see the state of someone else's soul? And two, in our haste to make moral claims about the legitimacy of a man who's discovering 
life with God again under the scrutiny of the public eye? Have the people who have spoken about him considered just how pharisaical and unchristian that approach to life really is? This is actually very similar to what is happening in James, what James is actually doing in James chapter 1. When he's addressing a letter to Jewish Christians who are trying to live out Christianity as if it were Judaism. So if you have your Bibles, flip to James 1 again. James 1 verse 2. For about four minutes, y'all, we're going to do a little deep dive. We'll make it, friends, okay? It's going to come together. Four minutes. James 1 verse 2. My brothers and sisters, think of various tests you encounter as occasions for joy. Does everyone see the word test? Maybe your Bible says trial. We tend to interpret this as a synonym for hardship, as a synonym for ordeal, as a synonym for suffering. So we frame it in a very particular way. But in the Greek, the, the word here is actually talking about a test, a testing, a trial in a legal sense. First and foremost, this word is a legal word, which changes the nature of the passage if you read it that way. Instead of meaning, think of the various hardships you encounter as occasions for joy, James is saying, think of the various tests, trials, Instances where we attempt to learn the nature of something, where we try and discover the reality of something, as occasions for joy. Did you catch that? Throughout scripture, trials and tribulations, that happens. It has unique words, hardships and sufferings, unique words, we endure them, okay? But here, James uses trial in the sense of meaning a legal occasion of discernment. So trial, not hardship. Trial as in the event where judgments are made. Trial, instances in life where assessments and decisions are made. In Greek, again, periasmos, to try to learn the nature or character of someone or something by submitting it to a test. Again, it's a legal term to start with. This shift changes everything. You see, instead of saying, think of hardships as an occasion for joy that produces endurance, what James is actually doing is telling his audience of Jewish Christians to rejoice in having to make judgments because making judgments is what tests our faith and produces our endurance. And living by faith in this work is what makes us whole. So this doesn't mean that they won't experience hardship. Everyone will. Everyone does. But specifically here, James, again, he's writing instructively for Jewish Christians to show that their faith is not like following the halakha of Judaism. It's not like Judaism. He starts the verse off by talking about, I am writing to the scattered people of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jewish people who are no longer 
in the tribes. They're scattered Jewish Christians who are looking to try and practice faith with Christ, and they're looking to this new space, this new thing that they've found, and they're saying, how come it's not like this? Where's the Torah? Where's the Talmud? Where are the mitzvahs? How do I know when and how and what to do in life? Rejoice in having to make judgments because making judgments is what tests our faith and produces endurance. And this is why in verse 5, right after the section at the beginning where it talks about producing endurance, staying, staying strong, staying through everything, it says, if you want wisdom, ask for it. It will be given to you completely changes the nature of this passage. Understanding the language here changes how the text reads us. Are you getting a sense of what James is saying? He's trying to show how life with God doesn't save us from discernment anymore. It doesn't give us the step-by-step-by-step guide for how to live in a given situation. Rather, life with God and faith in Christ progressively saves us as we practice the act of discerning. We're saved through discernment, not from discernment. And so we're progressively made more like God as we look at the world around us, and we're forced, we're forced to join with God in the work of God when we try and see as God sees. It changes how we engage the rest of the world. This is what God is for. He's for our full participation in the life and work of God on earth as it is in heaven. That is what he is for. And he invites us with open arms, says, join me in the work. And this, this is what James is trying to pass on to, again, Jewish Christians who are trying to figure out how to live as Christians, not as practitioners of Judaism. And this is why James can say every good gift comes from God, because every occasion and every experience we have presents us with the gift to do exactly what James has talked about, with the gift of having to rely on who God is, and to try and discern who God is and where God is working in the world. So he continues right on after this. And he says, this is why every good gift comes from God. So be quick to listen, slow to anger, and slow to speak. Are we catching the change in this passage? It's massive. We don't have time to go word by word. This passage is so dense, right? But it's not about hardship or suffering or, uh, or like dealing with an ordeal. This whole passage, the first chapter of James, is an encouragement from James to the 12 tribes who are scattered outside of Israel, Jewish Christians, to not treat new faith with Christ like Judaism. So don't look at your law books or to the halakha or the Talmud to tell you what to do in every situation. Christ is alive in you. You don't need the law or the mitzvahs to dictate your every move. 
If you claim Christ as Lord, Christ has written his law on your heart. Right? Echoing Romans there. Judge and discern with Christ by the Spirit in community and develop in wholeness as you live in the world. This is what is happening in James. This is the logic of James. This is the logic. If you've made it this far, breathe. We're good. Okay. We're good. This is the logic of James. So great information, Silas. Wonderful. How does this relate to the question that we reframed at the beginning? What does the logic of James have to do with the question, why do people perceive God to be anti-pleasure? The logic of James makes all the difference because for most Christians in America, we don't often heed the words and exhortations of James when it comes to how we practice our faith. Even though we are thousands of years apart, like the Jewish Christians that James is addressing, we still, on, we still insist on practicing our faith now, today, in ways that draw lines in the sand, that are quick to label something as right or wrong, and never discern how God is not done being God in someone's life or in a situation. And we distill down all of this so that to the question, why do people perceive God to be, to, to be anti-pleasure? The answer is really simple. We haven't given them a reason not to. We haven't given them a reason not to. Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel, he frames this in the most convicting way. He says, It is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. But it would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, when worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when religion speaks only in the name of authority and power, Rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. Its message becomes meaningless. Sit with this for a moment. Sit with this. This is a man who's writing in 1955. He is a Jewish theologian, a practitioner of Judaism a social activist. And he's speaking of his own tradition. This is what we have become. In John 5, there was a man who had been sick for 38 years. 
lying by the pool of Bethsaida. We looked at this passage earlier last year. And out of all the people at the pool, estimates range hundreds to thousands of people were around the pool. It's not like a kiddie pool. It is a place. Out of the hundreds and thousands of people who are there, Jesus walks up to one man and asks him, do you want to get well? The man has no idea who Jesus is. He doesn't say yes. All he says in the moment is, sir, I don't have anyone who can put me in the water when it is stirred up. And so Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Then the text says, right away, immediately he's healed, and then he picks up his mat, and he walks. And then the text makes very clear, oh, by the way, this was on the Sabbath. This was on the Sabbath. So the man is walking with the mat tucked under his arm, And Jewish leaders see him and they say to him, hey, it's the Sabbath. You aren't allowed to carry your mat. And the man replies by telling them, he's just doing what the man who made me well said to do. I'm just doing what the man who made me well said to do. He doesn't know him. And true to form, the Jewish leaders switch their attention, and they ask, who's the man who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man didn't know. And later, Jesus finds the now healed man in the temple, and Jesus says these peculiar words to him. See, you have been made well. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Why do people perceive God to be anti-pleasure? Because like the Jewish leaders in the text, more often than we'd like to admit, more often than I would like to admit, we've been so intent on policing others that we haven't even recognized God's healing work in the lives of people around us. A healed man for 38 years walks up to us, but he's breaking an infraction by carrying a mat. And we say, hey, don't carry your mat. We haven't seen the 38 years of healing that just walked in front of us. That's a miracle. Then when he says, well, I'm doing this because the person who actually fixed my life, he told me to do this, and I'm just falling through. I don't even know his name. Then we say, who told you that? So I can go straight to the source and cut this out. The Lord have mercy and Christ have mercy. Forgive us, Lord. We must do better. But also, remember, language is an interesting thing. How we read reveals what's really in our hearts. So when we see Jesus say to a man, see, you have been made well. Don't sin anymore. 
where something worse will happen to you. We often assume that Jesus is giving him a threat. And we assume that because if you're like me, if we had the power to heal and we just performed a miracle in someone's life and then we saw them wasting it, we'd take our blessing away once we saw someone sin. This is how the text reads us. But this is not the character of Christ. This is not what Christ is actually saying. What Christ is really saying is, hey brother, you've been healed and you've presented yourself in the temple. Remember, we find him in the temple. He's presented himself, or you've presented yourself to the temple so that you can make a new life for yourself. Side note, if you're uh, in a leprous colony or you, you know, were ostracized from community, you had to go to the temple to be declared clean enough to be able to integrate back into the community. Right? So there's a bunch of different um, rituals and ceremonies and things that you do so that you can be clean. Sometimes it's like, stay outside the camp for this many days, and then you can come back. You can reintegrate. This is probably what this man is doing. He's going to the temple so that he can reintegrate back into life. And what Jesus is really saying to him is, hey, you've been healed, you've presented yourself to the temple so that now you can make a new life for yourself. That's great. You've been made well. The world is yours. The world is your oyster. Right? Everything is open to you. All the options. Whole new life right in front of you. But as you make this new life for yourself, don't sin anymore. Don't live just for yourself. Don't turn your back on folks. Don't forget everyone else who was at the pool with you for 38 years. Don't forget them. You know why? If you do, your body will be healed. Like, I'm not going to make you sick again. But if you forget all of them and you just live for yourself, your soul will now be crippled even though your body is healed. The band, if you could come up. Friends, we have covered a lot today. We have looked at different sermonic approaches We've reframed the question behind the distortion, God is anti-pleasure. We've explored the logic of James. We've connected that to the question, why do people perceive God to be anti-pleasure? And we've flown through John 5. We could spend all day on John 5, we could spend all day on James. There's so much content. But for now as we respond with prayer and in song, obey the Lord as you feel God stirring in you this morning. Joni and Kurt are over there and they are happy and willing to pray with you and pray for you. And I'm not sure exactly what God is doing in each of our lives, but as we sing, obey the Lord. 
Because God is here. And today your life can change. And if there's a takeaway, something for us to do, a call to action for us this morning, it's this. Above all else, let's commit to living lives, living lives that cause others to encounter Jesus. Let's commit to living lives that cause others to encounter Jesus. And let's ask God for guidance as we learn to do that better. There is no set rule book on how to do that. But the Christian faith isn't supposed to work that way. God is alive in you. Christ is alive in you. And just like the transfiguration happens where he is changed, Our eyes and our lives are transfigured to see the world differently and to be in the world differently. This is nothing less than the call to be a Christian. This is what Christianity is for. So pray with me, and then let's respond. Holy God, we are, again, grateful for the gift of this day. And we are before you in a posture of humility, knowing that you are working for our good, but also you desire to work good through us. And in all the places we go, in all the places we work, with all the people we meet, may we be the kinds of people who don't look at a healed man And then question what he's wearing, what he's carrying, why he's doing such and such. But may we be the people who see him and say, the spirit of God is on your life. And the presence of Christ is alive in you. And you are made in the image of God the Father. Show us how to do this and empower us by the power of your spirit to do this well. And we pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Amen.